Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead us through the Delmarva Peninsula. And living here on Delmarva, I think that there are a lot of things that I take for granted, and probably other people do too. It's probably the same where anybody lives. If there's an attraction or a landmark, or like we have here, beaches that are close to where you live, you take for granted that at any point in time, you can have a day off from work and go visit there. You don't think for a minute that something could ever happen that could potentially harm or destroy something that seems intrinsic to where you live. On the southern part of the Delmarva Peninsula, there's an island that some people may not even be aware of. Some of the areas kind of marshy when you get there, and it's near the very southern part of the shore. It's on the roads that lead us to Chincoteague and Assateague. And so on your way there, you pass by Wallops or through Wallops Island. Wallops Island is not just any island, though. Rockets take off from there. And there's a visitor's museum, which, while exciting for fourth graders as we're visiting there on a field trip, um, or as a quick place to stop and stretch your legs while you're on your way to vacation and you want your kids to maybe learn something on the way, you can stop there and take a break and just kind of let the children explore. And they can even enjoy some astronaut ice cream, which really is kind of like dehydrated ice cream. But when you're a kid, it's really the most amazing thing. I mean, that's what we thought back then when we would visit there on a field trip. To me, Wallops Island would always represent going away on vacation and spending time with my family or the end of that week heading home. While most of, thing, of the things on display at the museum have remained the same with, of course, some updates as technology has progressed, it was exciting to take my children there for the first time. And the only time so far, because one's a teenager right now and the others are preteen, and getting them to go anywhere that may be slightly educational is really, really hard. And if you've ever had a teenager, you probably understand that. Now, we couldn't actually visit the launch site, though. That was strictly controlled. But I never really thought much about the launch site. To me, Wallops Island really was just the visitor center. You know, every once in a while, we would watch the news and there would be footage of a rocket taking off. You know, everything would be fine and that was that. But that was, was until October 28th, 2014. The pictures that were shown that night on the news were not of a clean, smooth rocket launch. It was of a fireball that was like nothing I'd ever thought I'd see at Wallops. And even with disasters that have happened with different space exploration crafts, such as the Challenger and Columbia space shuttles and the Virgin Enterprise crash, this happened really close to home. This happened at a place where I just couldn't imagine driving by and not seeing all of the buildings and the fencing and everything that went into making Wallops Island, Wallops Island. Before I get into the actual discussion of what happened on that day back in 2014, let me just kind of go through my normal housekeeping. All sources that I used will be linked in the description of the episode. If you like this type of content, I do have another podcast named Mystifyingly Missing 
true crime and thought-provoking events. And there will be a link in the description, as I do also anticipate making an episode about the Virgin Enterprise crash, which coincidentally took place on October 31st of 2014. So very, very close to this event. I don't think that the Virgin Enterprise crash is as well known as some of the other incidents. Also, at times, resources that I use for research may be behind a payroll. If you would like to donate, I do have a PayPal and a Buy Me a Coffee account. Um, Buy Me a Coffee is another way that allows contributors to donate if you wish to do so. And lastly, I am not any type of scientist, especially not a rocket scientist. I may mispronounce some things, or it may take me a little longer to explain some things than someone who works in the field um, or deals with this type of information on a regular basis. But with all of that being said, let's get started. First, let's find out a little bit about Wallops Island and find out what types of launches it's used for. And I have to say, it's much larger than I ever thought it was. But then again, I've only ever seen it from looking very far away, where there's buildings that, to me, really look like they're space age, or at least they did when I was a child. But it's also from a very far distance through a field and a fence. So it's not like I was actually up there and seeing all of the other smaller buildings. I just saw the larger on pieces of equipment or buildings that were there. Now, Wallops Island itself is a barrier island along the east coast of Delmarva, Virginia. I'm phrasing it this way to differentiate between other areas of Virginia, such as Virginia Beach, which is not technically part of the Delmarva Peninsula. So the barrier islands are along the coast as a series of islands that separate mainland Virginia from the Atlantic. These islands may look at times like they're about to go underwater, as when I've been driving through different parts um, in that general vicinity, it sometimes did seem like the water would come up to meet me during a heavy storm. One of the links that I will put in the description will be of Virginian places um, that really give a detailed look at the barrier islands and also as to what the storm surges look like. Now to get a little more of an idea of the type of conditions a barrier island may have, I've kind of in my mind related it to two of my relatives who lived on a different island named Elliott Island in Maryland. Um, that's on the other side of Delmarva, so on kind of the bay side closer to the Chesapeake Bay, but you know, it, it has the same feel in some ways. And at the time, the population was 52 people in 2010. But my two relatives have since moved from there. So it may be down to 50 unless someone's moved into their old home. I'm not sure. But Elliot Island is an island. And at times when there has been rain, my family members could not come from the island or get back to the island. There was a time where I ran into them before a storm hit and I told them to text me when they got home so I'd know they got home okay. But when they texted me, they had actually decided to stay with another relative because they couldn't get through. Now, Elliott Island is a little bit higher, I'm sorry, a little bit lower elevation than Wallops. So to give you kind of a comparison, Elliot has a 
four-foot elevation, whereas Wallop is seven-foot. Not really high elevation right there. So honestly, sometimes I wonder what people who live um, or work on those barrier islands feel like when they see these storms coming through. There are about 20 major barrier islands in Virginia. The island was originally known as Kegotek Island, but in 1692, the land was granted to John Wallop. Over time, the island was broken down into different sections up until 1889. But as are some of the guarantees in life, taxes weren't paid on the land, and in 1876, it was taken as part of a tax lien. In 1899 is when the Wallops Island Club was formed and the land was held by trustees with it becoming kind of like a vacation haven with members of the club and their families using the island in the summer to enjoy many of the outdoor activities that one may come to expect from an island. Beyond just being used for enjoyment, it was also used to graze cattle and ponies. And I have to wonder if they're the same ponies that are my Shinkatig or Assateek ponies. And if you've ever listened to this podcast, you know I absolutely adore them. In 1947, the Navy leased the northern part of the island, which was about the northern two-thirds of it. And it was being used for ordnance testing and what at the time was known as the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, which was the predecessor to NASA. But the NACA leased the remaining lower 1,000 acres. Currently, though, the island serves a very modern purpose. It is home to the Wallops Flight Facility, as well as MARS, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. However, there is also a wildlife refuge on the island, and that's called the Wallops Island National Wildlife Refuge, and it's home to a number of different birds, including eagles and great horned owls. So I do have to wonder how having a facility which has the potential to have a catastrophic incident on it will also have a wildlife refuge on it. Now, the climate is pretty seasonal, so it does have the four seasons that you can see markedly from the difference in temperatures. In the summer, especially in July and August, it can reach very high temperatures, with 102 degrees being the highest ever recorded, and that's 39 degrees Celsius, but it does average about 86 degrees during the summer, or 30 degrees Celsius. The lowest ever recorded temperature was negative 1 Fahrenheit, or negative 18 Celsius in February, but it averages around 32 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 1 to 4.5 Celsius. So there can be some extremes within the coldest and the hottest months. And the precipitation is pretty average as well. There's about 43 inches or 1,099 millimeters of precipitation in a year ranging anywhere from approximately 2.8 inches per month or 71 millimeters to 4.3 inches at the most or 110 millimeters. And the island in the location is both accessible and remote. It's close enough to say go to a hospital if needed, but at the same time will allow a lot of leeway or land as well as the ocean to allow for things such as space launches. Now, Monday, October 27th, 2014, 
preparations were being made to launch the latest Antares rocket. This is one of those things where you don't need to be directly at the site in order to partake in the awe-inspiring vision of a craft being launched into outer space, even if it's low-level orbit, such as this would be. Many people actually gathered in Washington, D.C. with cameras to try to get the perfect view as the rocket would pass overhead. So I'm sure that many people were disappointed when it had to be postponed the following day, or until the following day. A sailboat had entered the launch area, so not directly at the launch site, but there is a large field that is blocked off, even if there's not, say, buoys out there to have caution tape all around them. But there, there is about 1,400 square feet that is a launch zone to allow for you know any type of incident that may occur to limit the possibility of someone getting hurt. So unfortunately, though, this sailboat did go into the launch area, so it had to be postponed. There was a radar aircraft that saw the boat, and there was attempted contact with the boat, even with a plane um, passing over at a low level a couple of times, which is usually um, indicative that someone wants to try to contact you, but they didn't respond. Um, there was not any information on whether or not they were fined, but you could actually be fined um, or even sent to jail for getting into that zone, even though compared to 2004, when there was actually a fishing tournament going on, yeah, a lot of those boats actually wandered into the launch zone. So um, there are, though, notices sent out previously to let people know. So, you know, again, the launch was delayed until the following day, October 28th. And while beyond frustrating for everyone who had to experience this delay, it's not really unusual to have a launch stopped for a variety of reasons, which the most usual reason is because of the weather. And whenever there's a question as to safety, it's always better to err on the side of caution. That should be a given. Now, here's where we get a little bit more into the scientific stuff. So, what is an Antares rocket? First and foremost, an Antares rocket is considered to be an expendable launch system. And as indicated by the word expendable, it means it's not meant to last or be reused. The rocket would either burn off when it tried to re-enter the atmosphere or it would become part of the massive amount of space debris that we're slowly leaving up in space. I have actually heard of cases where the International Space Station has had to try to dodge pieces of space debris, and that is really sad. And we will be discussing the International Space Station a little bit as the rocket's intended destination was the ISS, which is how I'll refer to it from now on. The rocket was developed by Orbital Sciences Corporation, and I will let you know that I am looking at information regarding this company as well as another later, so I may be reading directly from the information provided, or I may paraphrase at times. So I did just want to make it clear that for some of the upcoming sections, I may be reading um, direct from the source. Orbital Sciences Corporation is now part of North Northrop Grumman, and according to a section on their website, the Antares is a two-stage vehicle with an optional third stage 
that provides lower earth or bee launch capabilities for payloads weighing up to 8,000 kilograms. Today, the rocket is primarily used to support the company's CRS or Commercial Resupply Services contract with NASA. So this is the contract to resupply the ISS. At the time of the event that we will be talking about today, Orbital had a $1.9 billion contract to fly eight missions. The name of the craft that was going to be sent up by this rocket was called the Cygnus Orb 3, or Orb 3 for short. And this was going to be the fourth resupply to the ISS with the fifth total Antares launch. Now, there are two different versions of the Antares, the 100 and 200, with really the biggest change coming with the type of engine that is used. Because of events that we will be discussing today, this was the last time that the 100 series was used. And while not necessarily as important to today's discussion, the future of some of these missions, or at least using the 200 series, is kind of up in the air right now, no pun intended. There is an Antares 300 being produced with another company named Firefly Aerospace because the first stage of the 200 rocket is produced in the Ukraine and the engine is produced in Russia. So with the events that are going on in the world at this time, especially in that specific region, that's created issues with being able to manufacture the 200. If you have ever watched a rocket launch, maybe even the space shuttle, you've probably noticed that parts of what have gone up do not stay in the air. They fall off or are jettisoned. In other words, they're not with the spacecraft any longer. And this is to do with the propulsion of the rocket. Even other ships um, that are involved in space flights, such as the Virgin Enterprise crash, the actual spacecraft does not take off on its own, but has vehicles or other airships that fly it up to a certain point before it takes off. I do sometimes to wonder if some of these or these two stories didn't get as much um, news or media coverage because there were two big events pretty close to each other. I did see coverage on each event, but it wasn't as though um, th that it was a major news story. At least it didn't seem like at the time. So that is just a thought that I've had with the two being just three days apart. So getting back to the propulsion or takeoff of an Antares or any other type of rocket, there are multiple steps to get that object into space. It takes a lot of energy or fuel. And so what would happen is as each stage burns off that amount of fuel, those tanks or stages will be dropped off. And the reason that they disconnect or drop off from the spacecraft is because of the drag that they would create. And the more drag that they have, which when you look at the humongous tanks on the side of you know some of these spacecraft, they do create a ton of drag and friction, which means they would use an even larger amount of fuel. So that's why rockets or other types of spacecrafts actually have those multiple steps. The actual countdown started three hours and 50 minutes prior. That's just getting everything in place and doing things that are called poles. And though not explicitly said in what I was reading, it sounds almost like it's a checklist 
as well as making sure everybody is where they're supposed to be. Each step is initiated at a certain time, loading fuel and loading liquid oxygen, both of which are very combustible. And there are steps in the process that switch power from external to internal power and making sure that the propellant tanks are pressurized. There was an extremely long list of what happens at each stage, and I will include that in the source material. With the knowledge that we have in hindsight, I do have to wonder if there was any extra concern because of recent events regarding the AJ-26 engine, which was being used. More about that a little bit later. The launch time for the new date of October 28th was 11, 22, and 38 seconds p.m. UTC. The Orb 3, which had been nicknamed the Deke Slayton to honor one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, launched at the scheduled time, but about 15 seconds into the liftoff, it was obvious that something was not going as planned. The propulsion that was needed in the first stage did not happen as the rocket started to ascend. Then the rocket magnificently exploded. And magnificently doesn't always mean good, but in this case, it means of great magnitude. Protocols that workers at the site never wanted to have to implement started, and they started immediately. While I've seen this term listed many times as the self-destruct button, the technical term is the flight termination system. It is the job of the range safety officer to ensure as little damage as possible if something goes wrong. So rather than the rocket falling uncontrollably or possibly being propelled in a manner where debris could have an even larger impact, it was safer to have it actually destruct before it gets to that point. So they push the button. The explosion could be felt 20 miles away in Pocomoke, and as with any type of aviation, including spacecraft, there are the steps that need to be taken to not only minimize the damage, but then to start to preserve evidence of the crash. Whenever there is a launch, the Wallops Island Fire Department is on standby with extra people on hand than they normally would. They were able to contain the fire pretty quickly with patches of smaller fires burning out overnight. To investigate the cause of the explosion as well as, most importantly, assessing if there were any injuries, an assessment of the area surrounding Wallops Island indicated that the damage was limited to just the facility itself And at the first update, there were no injuries reported and no personnel seemed to be in danger. This was confirmed later. The damage to the property and other vehicles, though used at the launch area, was deemed significant. As far as what caused the main problem, it was quickly determined that the turbo pump had exploded. In one video that you can watch, you can just kind of feel the buzz in the air with people getting excited about the launch This is taken from the view of a spectator standing far back outside, of course, of the launch zone, but excitedly waiting for the rocket to take off. And when it does, their expressions are of excitement and happiness, but that quickly changes. Just looking at the rocket, even if you don't have any knowledge of how a launch should go, it's pretty obvious that something has gone wrong. A man can 
can be heard saying that it was going to be loud repeatedly. A woman whose voice we heard throughout the first part of the video, well, her voice starts to change and you can hear the fear and sadness in her voice with what must have been a great concern for all of the individuals that were close to where the explosion occurred. One of the clearest videos and pictures came from a private pilot who was flying at 3,000 feet, which I assume also was outside of the exclusion zone. And the pictures that he took give a vantage point that you wouldn't have expected to see. The astronauts from the ISS had also been looking down to watch the launch. And I did get chills watching the video. And once I learned that the astronauts were also looking down, it just made me wonder what they must have felt, such as a sense of loss, not only about the supplies that wouldn't be coming, but about the program and any upcoming missions that may have been compromised. A number of the articles and sources that I reviewed did have pictures or video of the launch, so please make sure that you get a chance to look through any of them as, as viewing them in the context of the article can be very enlightening. Now, in terms of the cargo, it was worth about $200 million. That's not including the cost of the rocket and damage to the facility and the scientific information that could have been gathered using items that were within the cargo. Some of the items that we do know about within the cargo was a study on how to enable a space-based observation of how meteors enter the Earth's atmosphere. This sounds like this would be pretty important to help protect against any possible collisions. I know that seems a remote possibility, but it can be a possibility nonetheless. There are also a number of different experiments, including topics such as the effects of microgravity on plant growth and the rates of milk spoilage in space, and an international research, including study a study to determine how blood flows from the brain. So when you have a rocket launch, who responds when there's an accident? There is actually two different stations that protect Wallops Island. It's called the Wallops Flight Facility Fire Department, or WFFFD. Their job is to protect the 6,200 acres in Wallops Island. From a report in 2017, there were about 50 firefighters, with some of them being part-time. The first fire station is located on the mainland, and its job is to protect the base and the second station is on the island and it's there to protect the launch facility. Station one was built in 1955 and station two was opened in 2000. However, the building itself had been there since 1955, so the actual structures are the same age. Station two, though, is extremely close to the launch pad and only 1,800 feet away. One of the issues with having a station so close to a launch pad is if there is an explosion, things that are needed to fight the fire can be damaged pretty easily. In this case, the bay doors of the fire station were destroyed when the rocket exploded. Thankfully, though, the building, building was mostly intact, but Station 2 had to move temporarily to a different part. Now, normally, the fire department is staffed in a rotating schedule, 
where they normally work about 56 hours a week. Now, of course, when we have something such as a launch occurring, there is an increase in those numbers, and there were about 20 firefighters on hand, as well as other support staff and EMS. Now, in a normal year, they can handle between one and 2,000 calls. One example that was given was in the year 2001, there were 344 emergency calls, so averaging almost one a day, but there were also a number of what's called standby calls, and those are calls where, as it the name seems to indicate, that people need to stand by in case something does happen. This even means when something is being refueled, the fire department does come on standby just to make sure that if there's any issues, they are right there, and even if necessary, set up a decontamination area. Immediately after the crash, the investigative team started taking witness statements. The investigation was to be led by the Deputy General Manager of Orbital Launch Systems, so the company that made the rocket. The Deputy General Manager at the time was Richard Straka. The team that he would be overseeing would include people representing NASA, Wallops Island, as the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport and Orbital itself. So the rocket individually was owned by Orbital Sciences. So while NASA was in charge of the launch, Orbital Sciences were in charge of the rocket. But investigations like this would take time. Orbital initially stated that their one point of note was that this was the first instance of using an upgraded motor for the second stage of liftoff. The investigation was completed about a year later. However, the exact reason for it was not agreed upon. The report issued from NASA, which was released on October 29, 2015, so one year, one day later, discovered three things that could have led to the explosion. But this is actually broken down into two parts. The first is that there was an explosion within the liquid oxygen turbo pump. This explosion was believed to have occurred when two parts of the turbo pump touched or rubbed together, which created a spark. And when looking at the fact this was dealing with oxygen, any spark would have caused an explosion. So the question here then is why did these two pieces scrape or rub together? It would have been obvious to anybody working on the project that any type of friction would be detrimental if not downright catastrophic. So the three reasons that NASA found as a possibility for this was that first, the explosion could have occurred, to use the terminology of the report, was that it was an inadequate design robustness. And what that basically means is the design itself was flawed. And with that flaw, it made the engine more susceptible to fires, especially oxygen fires. They concluded that the testing that was done on the engines was not enough to detect the problem either. A second theory was that something could have breached the engine, such as a foreign body. There was silica and titanium found in the engine, and it should not have been there. So again, to use the terminology of the report, there were not gross levels of such debris in the engine based on the lack of additional damage to the engine, but could not determine how much debris was in the engine prior to the explosion. So this basically comes down to whether or not the silica and titanium were in the engine before the explosion, or did it get into the engine as a result of the explosion? 
And the third possibility would basically say that there was not a design flaw or anything else that could have breached the engine, but that the cause itself lay with the manufacturing of the engine. There had, in fact, been another engine of the same kind, the AJ-26, that had exploded at the Stennis Space Center in the same year, in May of 2014. That explosion occurred during testing, but even with this information, NASA could not determine whether or not the degree of the manufacturing defect would have been enough to cause the explosion. So they knew that the turbo pump exploded, but there was never a definitive reason as to why. So this was NASA's report. Orbital had been running the investigation as well, and they did conclude, like NASA, that elements of the turbo pump came in contact and ignited into a fire, which caused the explosion. They were in agreement that it was the turbo pump, but however, they were more definitive in their response as to what caused the problem with the turbo pump. They used the term highly probable. So Orbital believed that a defect in the actual assembly of the turbo pump is what caused the explosion. And here enters an issue that harkens back to something that I said earlier. The turbo pump assembly took place 40 years prior to this explosion and had been produced in what was then known as the Soviet Union. The reason that the that orbital was able to come to this conclusion and lean on it more heavily than the others was that there was a piece of engine that somehow they found that did not have a lot of damage from the explosion itself, but they were able to determine that there was a manufacturing defect on that particular piece. So I'm thinking they really had to study this particular piece to determine what was a manufacturing defect and what damage may have been done or not been done by the explosion. So again, they did not use the term definitely or 100%. So this is still a theory, but they considered it highly probable and more probable than the others. However, just to cover all bases, there were some other possibilities, though they did not hold as much stock in these other ones as they did the fact that there was a manufacturing defect. Now, the fact that this next possibility is even a possibility just left me shaking my head. I mean, my face probably could have been used as a meme for when I read this. So, reportedly, one of the issues may, and again, this was not probable, but a small possibility, that, quote, poor long-term storage of the engine causing corrosion of the engine components, end quote, could have been a possibility. So, that means this engine was stored in a way that it was not protected. Remember, it's about 40 years old. And because the storage itself was not adequate, there could have been corrosion, which just led to the whole issue. So even if this is not the reason why Orb 3 exploded, the fact that it could be a possibility, that they would use an engine that had a possibility of having corrosion or some other type of defect because it wasn't stored properly is just horrendous. So I'm not really feeling a lot of confidence in Orbital. Now, Orbital also deemed it even less likely that a foreign object somehow made it into the turbo pump. NASA was critical of Orbital and also Aerojet. Aerojet made, if I can use that word, the engine that was being used, the AJ-26. 
Now, issues could be dated back to the original manufacturing of the AJ-26, stating that, quote, a lack of design and operating insight into the AJ-26 engines creates a low level of confidence and loss of mission predictions. So this also is not comforting. For a little bit more history, earlier in the same month than that this explosion occurred, Aerojet, who produces the AJ-26, reported a loss of $17.5 million for just the quarter prior to this incident. The loss was blamed primarily on issues around the engine that failed in the test of May 2014. The reason why that contributed to the loss is because they had to repair the test stand that was used for testing engines. I would have to imagine as well that there was a loss to some of their stock prices and Aerojet was still fixing and refurbishing these engines. So Aerojet was not actually making these engines. Again, just as a reminder, So they were also looking at ways to make sure, of course, that an explosion wouldn't happen again. So they had to increase inspections on the engines that had not been delivered yet. So Aerojet had a number of engines that they had not delivered to orbit, but they had delivered 10 so far. And two of those 10 engines were on this this Antares rocket, the Orb 3. Even though there had just been an International Astronautical Congress on September 30th, so just about a month prior to the explosion, representatives of neither Aerojet nor Orbital said what they thought the failure of the test engine could have been. They did say that they had two potential root causes, but did not discuss that further. And while the article about the $17.5 million in losses was written before the October 28th accident, concerns about the future of the AJ-26 were already being discussed. And while the $17.5 million loss was for the quarter immediately prior to the explosion, the annual losses at the time had been $61.8 million. So we can imagine what it must have gone up to right after the explosion. To go back further, just about a year prior, in September of 2013, Aerojet happily disclosed that there had been a successful test of the AJ-26. And while the AJ-26 really was a type of give me your product and we'll make it our own type of deal, this was really a refurbished NK-33 engine. The NK-33 was actually developed for a Russian rocket. The reason why this engine was potentially a great fit for the U.S. or really for any launch is that it was, quote, among the highest thrust to weight ratio of any Earth-launched rocket engine, end quote. So it did have positive attributes. These engines had been purchased by Aerojet in the 1990s, and they had spent time modifying these engines. So this leads me to a question, that if they had been working on these engines since the mid-1990s, why was there no detection of a manufacturing defect which could have led to these catastrophic results? The comments section for, so before we get comfortable looking at Orbital or Aerojet or any specifically involved in this particular rocket launch. 
let's take a look at some of the numbers and another player in this game. While Orbital held the contract that would be $1.9 billion for eight launches, NASA did not apparently put all of its eggs into one basket, thankfully for the astronauts at the ISS. So, much like he did with Twitter yesterday, or recently depending on when you're listening to this, in walks Elon Musk, this time carrying SpaceX and not the kitchen sink. SpaceX had a $1.6 billion contract for 12 missions using different machinery such as a Falcon 9 rocket and a robotic capsule. So, I'm sitting here and I'm wondering about the difference in cost. Orbital, 1.9 million, 8 launches. SpaceX, 1.6 billion, 12 missions. So SpaceX had less money for more launches. So I have to question in one sense, were the launches comparable or did they entail things that were different to the point that such a difference in cost could be explained? But SpaceX would not come out of this unscathed. On its seventh attempt in June of 2015, the Falcon 9 started to fall apart above Cape Canaveral. This was said to have been because of a faulty steel strut. Looking at the history of the Antares, it's had a pretty successful launch history. To this point, the only failure did come with the October 28, 2014 mission. As stated earlier, there could be delays in the upcoming missions as the parts needed are supplied by two nations right now at war. Currently, there are still plans for a launch of an Antares rocket on November 6, 2022. This will be known as the Cygnus NG-18, NG standing for Northrop Grumman, and this will be the 16th flight to the International Space Station under the contract with NASA, the CRS or Commercial Resupply Service. Though I have searched and was not able to find more information on this, the parts needed may have already been produced and on hand in order to go with this launch before the first launch is scheduled of the 300 series. The final launch of the 200 series will be in March of 2023 as things are scheduled at this point in time. That would be the NG-19. In regards to what caused this explosion, so far it seems like it's just pass the blame with no one entity actually taking responsibility and saying that things were missed. We have one contractor who gets parts and supplies and refurbishes 40-year-old engines where, based on one of their theories as to why the explosion occurred, it seems as though there was a possibility that the engines were not stored properly. This introduces so many different possibilities that they're probably even hard to calculate at this point. But on the one hand, they say that there could have been corrosion because they weren't stored properly. But they also, they also think that the probability of a foreign object coming into contact or getting into the turbo pump is a small possibility. I personally am not 
leaving that 100%. If there's a possibility of any type of corrosion, which they seemed willing to admit, then how can the possibility of a foreign object be so far out of the realm of possibility? Do I really have an opinion as a lay person who is not a scientist as to why there was friction that caused a spark to the turbo pump for the liquid oxygen on stage one of this rocket launch? Well, I can't really tell you. For one thing, those who have the degrees, who have the experience, aren't able to say definitively why. So if that's the case, how can anybody reading about or trying to understand why an explosion that cost so much in terms of not only money, but in trust of a nation that does watch and want to learn from the launches and the exploration that's taking place, and the trust of possibly the astronauts who are looking down at the launch, expecting to see a successful launch of a rocket that will be sending their cargo to dock with the ISS only to see an explosion in its place. There could have been damage to the base as well as the wildlife and natural habitat. So there was so much more at stake here than just money lost on a contract or the loss of the cargo as far as the monetary expense. The list of losses could go on and on, and there really seems to be no accountability. Sometimes it seems like to me that there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Each company relies on another company, which relies on another company, which relies on another company. And while we would see this in almost every sector of not just aeronautics or space systems, but in most aspects of life, when it comes down to multi-million, even billion-dollar contracts, then one would expect, and let's just say demand, that every safety precaution is being followed. Even if something was manufactured by another company, the company taking possession of that item should do a thorough inspection and do multiple tests to make sure that whatever that product is will hold up to the strongest of stresses that one could ever expect that item to be put to. That there had been an explosion of a test engine that same year doesn't say to me that there was accountability. That doesn't say to me that at every point in the production that someone was there to give critical feedback and basically have the initiative or the guts to stand up to someone and say that this launch needs to be delayed or we have to do these changes or do these inspections before we can even think of doing another launch. But that doesn't seem to be what happened. You know, sometimes when you're reading an article, the comment section really tells you what you need to know better than what any article can do. In reviewing comments from the article that discussed both the similarities and the differences in NASA's final report and Orbital's final report, there was an allusion to Jurassic Park, or in other words, resurrecting a dinosaur in terms of using the AJ-26 
which was really a refurbished NK-33 that was made 40 years earlier. Looking at all the advancements that have been made in all aspects of science and wondering what type of components and adaptions would have to be made in order for the engine to work, I thought if it would be anything like trying to get an adapter to change a 5.5-inch disc into a micro SD card. Now, some of you may know what a 5.5-inch disc is. Others may not. But I, I think we've all seen the size of a micro SD, and it's not going to work. And that's really where I'm going with my thoughts on refurbishing an engine from 40 years ago. I'm all for reusing and repurposing things whenever it's possible, but in something that can cause an explosion, I think there needs to be a little bit more recognition of when possibly to make a new item rather than using one that's 40 years old. But I think the best comment came from someone who had the username Mr. Snarky Answers, and this is what he had to say. He said, Only in this industry could we have a situation where it is possible that some lowly communist machinist working for the Kuznetsov Design Bureau in the early 1970s could take out a resupply mission for American astronauts departing Virginia in 2014. This is right out of a Tom Clancy novel. And the quote from Mr. Snarky Answer. I think I said answers before, but it's Mr. Snarky Answer. And I think that's a good place to end. You know, again, I know I'm not a scientist, so I hope I explained both not only the geographic location, but what occurred on that day, and at least to the extent that we know what happened. I will be working on the Virgin Enterprise crash and have that out hopefully by the 31st. I should. Um, There was an episode of Air Disasters, which is where I heard about more information from that particular crash. I had heard of it before, but hadn't really seen it covered as much. So just the fact that these took place so so close together seems almost unbelievable. So if you would like to listen to that, again, that will be on the Mystifyingly Missing podcast. And I hope that everybody has a safe and happy weekend, depending on when you're listening to this. If it's during the week, have a safe and happy week, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.